Where is your next meal coming from? Try Caviar. Caviar delivers the best restaurants. Order on the Caviar app or online. That is caviar.com. Get the food you crave delivered. There's pizza, Chinese, and much more. Indian, sushi, barbecue, all delivered from local restaurants. Order today and pay no delivery fee on your first order. Plus, take $10 off your first order of $30 or more with code WORLDLY. That's WORLDLY. Offer valid until March 15th, 2018. Hello and welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Zach Beecham. Uh, Yochi Driesen is out this week, but we are joined as ever by Jennifer Williams. Hello. And our special guest, Alex Ward. Happy to be here. Today we're going to be talking about Guantanamo Bay, the U.S. naval base in Cuba. Specifically, the prison there, which has become one of the most infamous detention centers in the world. Though Barack Obama vowed to shut it down and did release a lot of the prisoners there, he couldn't manage to close it by the time that he left office. That left things to President Trump, who finally addressed the issue in his State of the Union this year. In it, he said that he signed an order to Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis to re-examine our military detention policy and to keep open the detention facilities in Guantanamo Bay. So that sounds an awful lot like a reversal of the Obama vow to shut it down, right, Jen? Yeah, it is. He also, right before that speech, signed an executive order literally reversing an executive order that President Barack Obama had signed um, in his first days in office that called for Guantanamo's closure. So this executive order that he's essentially announcing as part of the State of the Union um, repealed part of Obama's executive order. It also directed uh, detention operations to continue, which is really important, and permitted additional detainees to be sent to the prison. Um, And then he gave Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis three months to recommend policies for holding people captured in armed conflict, um, including people transferred to to Gitmo. So that's kind of this big executive order. So he he not just, uh, he didn't only reverse it, Uh, He also essentially said, we're now allowing more people to be sent there if we decide to. Okay, so to understand why this is important, we really need to back up and get into the history of how this naval base that the U.S. has had for quite a long time, actually, became a prison for suspected terrorists. Now, Alex, what's what's the history here? Like, Run us through this. Sure. So it opened on January 11th, 2002. Uh, that's just a couple months after the 9-11 attacks. And it was chosen specifically, if you don't know where Guantanamo Bay is, it is in Cuba, uh, and it is in like the really, really southeastern tip of the island. Um, really remote area, very desert-filled, banana rats everywhere. Um, banana and, rats? Banana rats. These are rats with really long noses, and people who I've talked to who actually serve there drive over them or throw rocks at them to pass the time, like, because they're really bored. Anyway, uh, the point is they picked this location, according to Colonel Morris Davis, because it's effectively a law-free zone. This allowed the U.S. to, the people who they detained, to basically do whatever they felt they wanted to. That includes torture, enhanced interrogation technique is the nice way of saying that. Um, Wait, sorry, why yeah. is it law-free? Or it seems like it's a U.S. naval base, so it should be governed by military law. Right, uh, and it is, but no one was really there to really inspect what was happening, right? So in other words, they, these were directives given from civilian officials to the military to do these things, and some military officials pushed back, but at the end of the day, that is a civilian policy, and also it's out of the, the reach and sort of view of people. Interesting to note that the Obama order that Jen had mentioned uh, effectively said that, uh, and here's the actual line from it, Obama's order said to close Guantanamo as soon as practical and no later than one year from the date of this order. Uh, it's still open, and there are tons of reasons why, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. But the point the point is, this has been 
this has been an institution uh, of our counterterrorism or global war on terrorism for quite a long time. Uh, and it looks like it'll continue to be so in the future. Right. So just kind of going back to, you know, when it opened, the point was to hold prisoners captured during George W. Bush's war on terror, right, in response to the 9-11 attacks. Um, and the first prisoners we started kind of sending were people suspected to be members of al-Qaeda, um, fighters for the Taliban, and other kind of Islamist uh, militia groups that were fighting on the ground in Afghanistan. Like you said, Alex, you know, part of it was to have this kind of lawless area. So the Bush administration argued that because these were um, prisoners of war that weren't kind of like a state-on-state actors. We weren't fighting another, like, country. We were fighting these non-state actors who were just kind of stateless. Um, And that the Geneva Conventions essentially didn't apply, right? The Geneva Conventions, which set out the laws of war and international conflict. And so, essentially, they also kind of looked at the war in Afghanistan and said, okay— you know, we are going to capture all these people. We need to interrogate them. We need to have a place to put them. We don't want to put them in in prisons just short term in Afghanistan um, because the prisons there aren't secure enough. We need to have a place to kind of send them so we can essentially interrogate them. And so they looked around and said, hey, you know, this base in Guantanamo would work. Let's put them there. Well, I think the, the key point about why this was so disturbing is twofold. The first is that this was indefinite detention. In the U.S. legal system, we're not supposed to just hold people and keep them in places without trial, right? But that's what Guantanamo was was almost explicitly designed to do under the Bush administration, right? And, and the second thing is that it was the epicenter of the CIA's secret torture program, right? This is the most infamous place where the U.S. did awful, unspeakable things to people who were, some of whom were actual terrorists, but some of whom were, were innocent people who were caught up and part of these U.S. counterterrorism operations or in the war in Afghanistan. And, and even... If the people were guilty, like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, perhaps the most infamous Guantanamo detainee, he certainly was a major al-Qaeda operative, but he was waterboarded 183 times, right? This is not just isolated torture. It's torture as a policy, as a regime. Right. So, yeah, Guantanamo essentially became this symbol. It was a symbol of of two things. One, the kind of unlimited, indefinite detention of of people— And then the torture issue, obviously. Um, So just a kind of point of clarification. So the law of war does actually permit uh, detention without trial of captured enemies. Like that's a normal thing. You can do that during hostilities while a war is going on. The problem is that this war on terror isn't a traditional war that has like a definitive end date. Obviously, all these years later, we're still fighting that, right? We're still using the the Congress's authorization for that war. Um, And so these people, there's no time where we can like say, oh, these are captured prisoners of war. We now can send you back. We're done fighting. There's there's no end to it. So it's become this like weird legal challenge that, you know, the Obama administration, the Bush administration before it and now the Trump administration have to kind of grapple with. So what do we do with these people? Um, And it goes to kind of a broader point that we still have to deal with. So I think we can get into the status of Guantanamo now. Right. So all these years later, what, 16 years later? Um, so there were total uh, about 780 people have gone through Guantanamo Bay. Um, 730 have been transferred. There are still 41 people right now still being held in Gitmo. So those 41 prisoners are kind of the big issue we're still dealing with right now. Um, five of them have already been recommended for transfer out. So that's one of the issues is what do we do with these people, right, who have been cleared, we're not charging them with anything. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean they didn't do anything, uh, but we haven't. We don't have enough to charge them in a, in a court of law, right? So they've been cleared. 
But the problem is that we have to find a country to take them. One of the countries that has been taking people in some of these places, uh, some of them are from Yemen, uh, is Yemen. (laughs) So you might remember, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, we've done an episode, Yemen is in a massive state of of war right now. So it's not like we can just send them back and assume that there's going to be a government that can take care of these people, watch over them, uh, do rehabilitation. We don't just send them back and go, get off the plane, have fun with the rest of your life. We have to set up with these other governments who are going to take them. So that's one of the problems. The other problem is that there's a group of, of these prisoners, there's 26 of them, who are not recommended for transfer, who have not been charged, who have not been convicted, and who there's essentially no plans to even be able to charge them with a crime. And that goes back to the torture issue, right? So part of the problem is that the information that we got from these people um, that we would essentially need to use to convict them, a lot of it came from torturing them. Um, And we can't use that in a court of law. You can in some cases, in a military tribunal. But essentially, we have a lot of problems with being able to convict these people. So this 26 is seriously the last problem, that even if we were to shut down Gitmo, we'd still have to figure out somewhere else to put these people. Just a super quick point on the 41 prisoners that are still there. They've all been there for at least 10 years. Right. Uh, The last one that we got that arrived was March 14th, 2008. Look, I think that the issue that, that Jen is raising here is not just about what is happening in Guantanamo, though it's logistically difficult to close, and these are some of the reasons why Obama couldn't close it, it, it's that Guantanamo is part of a broader architecture and shift in the way that the U.S. operates, right? It's towards a permanent war footing in which U.S. law takes a backseat to priorities of an expansive counterterrorism campaign, one in which, frankly, human rights aren't given the same level of priority that they were Uh, in U.S. law prior to the 9-11 attacks. This is the war on terror. Guantanamo isn't just an isolated thing. It is an exemplar of the way that this pursuit of terrorism has corrupted American law and and the rule of law in a lot of fundamental ways, which is why the Obama administration seemed so intent on closing it. And, and make no mistake, like the, the because the war on terror continues, we've escalated in Afghanistan. We've escalated our involvement against ISIS. And even though the military conflict has ended, it's very or almost ended. Excuse me. It's it's completely possible that a lot of these terrorists that were that we may capture get more intelligence from end up in Guantanamo, as Trump added. So even though the last kind of person's been there uh, arrived in two thousand eight, we might have recent additions. Right. And so Trump actually said that in right. his State of the Union speech. He said, you know, he said it on the campaign. First of all, yep. we're going to we're going to fill it up with bad dudes. Load them up. <laughs> yeah. Load it up with bad dudes. And he said in his State of the Union speech, um, kind of similar things that we're going to, you know, maybe send some of these prisoners to Guantanamo. So there's an actual legal reason why, despite all of his tough talk, right, he might not actually the administration might not actually want to do that. It could end up essentially coming back to bite him in the ass. So we're essentially still fighting under, you know, we're fighting ISIS under what's called the the AUMF, right? The Authorization for the Use of Military Force, uh, 2001 and 2002. So Congress basically gave the Bush administration this authority to go fight uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban and associated groups that threaten the United States. So it's that kind of associated groups piece we've still kind of extended all these years later to kind of argue that that also counts, you know, for ISIS, even though not only did ISIS not exist on 9-11, but Al-Qaeda in Iraq, that was the group that spawned ISIS, didn't even exist on 9-11. So it's kind of a stretch. The problem is that if you start bringing captured ISIS suspected terrorists to Gitmo, um, the Supreme Court has said that that 
prisoners at Guantanamo Bay have the right to habeas corpus in federal court, which means they have the right to ask a federal judge in the United States to determine whether their detention is lawful. So they can bring the case. So that was a kind of a big shift in and of itself, right? So there wasn't this indeterminate detention where they couldn't go to any judge to ask for, you know, please help and see if this is legal, which means that if we bring these ISIS terrorists, suspected terrorists to Gitmo, they could therefore immediately turn around and petition for habeas corpus to a U.S. federal judge and challenge it on the grounds of the AUMF does not authorize me to be held. Now, that has never been challenged in court yet. We've never had anyone related to ISIS brought to Gitmo because this has always been Al-Qaeda and Taliban related. So there's no established case law to say that, yeah, that would be possible. So this would be a massive, huge legal challenge that could potentially upend the entire justification that we have for fighting ISIS. It's a really big legal risk. And there are a lot of really smart people in the Trump administration who are probably going to explain that to Trump and say, I get that you want to talk tough and do this, but here are the reasons why it might not be the best idea. That'll go over well. Right. There's the legal question, of course, and there's the human rights issue. But let's not forget the politics here. I mean, the politics is such that the American people like Guantanamo Bay open. They don't want it to close. Poll after poll shows that Americans like when we take terrorists and put them there and detain them indefinitely. Uh, it, it it works and in terms sorry it works sorry it works in the terms of like when when Republicans say like we like we put people there we put them away that's something that a base likes it's politically to, likes effective to it's politically effective saying. yeah yeah it's politically effective uh, right that's part of why Obama couldn't close it right the right. early idea in the Obama administration was why don't we just move these people all to other military bases inside the United States or try them in federal court. But even the Democratic-controlled Congress passed a law saying that you couldn't move Guantanamo inmates to U.S. prisons. And the reasoning basically is that nobody wanted to have alleged terrorists in their district or in their state. Yeah, and Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton both voted in separate bills, but to essentially oppose the closure of Guantanamo Bay, just for the record. So it's not just a Republican thing, right? Right. It's just, it, it is, as Alex said, it's bad politics. And Obama probably would have closed it in his first year if it weren't for Congress. In, in 2009, he tried to move uh, five 9-11 conspirators to New York City for, to, to face a federal um, trial. Including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Including right. Sheikh Mohammed. And this was, this was like blocks from, uh, from the World Trade Center. Interesting, he couldn't pull it off. One, because of the congressional pushback. But two, also pushback from the Department of Justice. Eric Holder and then later on, even Loretta Lynch, uh, both the attorney generals, uh, pushed back on Obama's decision to do this. So now they have just stayed in Guantanamo. They transferred them back. Transferred them back. Yeah. And what's weird is like they still don't have a start date for their trial. They are still in right. pre-trial hearings. Uh, it, it's just taking forever. And, and 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 so part of the reason why I mentioned the political effectiveness of this is I totally get the rhetoric of we're, we're loading up bad guys and we're putting them there. But it's just like so inefficient. One, legally, right? Where a lot of just civilian federal courts are, are just putting more convictions on these terrorists much, at a much faster rate. Right. And on top of that, it's so expensive to run Guantanamo. Just an example, it's $10 million per detainee. Uh, that's the cost. And it run, it's cost about $445 million just to run Guantanamo alone. For like a, an administration that claims it doesn't want to spend money on stupid shit, this is one of those things where we're spending a lot of money on stupid shit. Right. But again, it goes to the issue of Congress. It's literally illegal right. for us to transfer yeah. them back because the, the law that Congress actually passed, it said you can't spend any money updating or doing anything to U.S. federal prisons to, you know, basically like make them more secure to hold these prisoners and you can't transfer them back. So Congress would have to, you know, it's not just Trump can't do this by himself if he wanted to close it and he obviously doesn't, um, but Congress would have to act. So it's a broader thing. I think it's important though to go back to kind of the 
the broader question of what does Guantanamo Bay symbolize, right? Because as we've discussed, if we were to close that, we would essentially still have to deal with what to do with the people who are still there. That wouldn't solve the problem. It would just move them to another place. They would still essentially be held indefinitely because there's no real solution for how to figure out how to kind of charge these last people because there are serious questions about whether we could actually try them. That's a problem, right? You also just, I mean, we can keep them forever. Like, what do you do? So Guantanamo itself, the facility, isn't really the problem anymore. It's more the kind of legal issues that we created. But Guantanamo does serve as this kind of rhetorical, broader symbol of like the U.S. abuses during the war on terror. And that's kind of the biggest argument for closing it. It's not that like, you know, there the the massive torture abuses that have that went on at Guantanamo Bay have largely ended. There was a report in December, um, just recently this past December, that one prisoner is it came from the human the UN Human Rights Overseer uh, saying that one prisoner has been tortured still, even though it's illegal now. Um, but the broader kind of insane abuses, rectal feeding, waterboarding have ended. So the the symbolic kind of bigger problem of Guantanamo Bay is still there just because it still exists. Well, it's also an important question about where Trump wants to take this war on terrorism architecture. I mean, I'm not saying that Trump has a plan. I don't think that this administration is big on plans. But early in the administration, there was a floated draft executive order that would have, in essence, set up a committee to examine whether or not we should bring back torture. That's not explicitly what it said, but right. that more or less would have been the effect. This executive order was never issued. There was a huge amount of pushback from the national security bureaucracy and in the press. But now that we're keeping Guantanamo Bay open, at least it seems for the foreseeable future and, and formally giving up on the idea of, a, of shutting it down, the question becomes, do we make further changes to the war and terror architecture as it evolved under Obama? Do we continue scaling the U.S. back from the kind of extra-legal questionable procedures that the Bush administration used, or do we ramp them back up? Do we turn back into the post-9-11 pseudo-lawless era that we experienced with indefinite detention and warrantless spying and all of that? And that's that's a really deep question about the kind of country America ought to be when right. pursuing its fight on terrorism. And it's not clear to me that there's a clear vision in this administration. And I do think it's important to kind of note, you know, when we're talking about what the Trump administration wants to do. John Kelly, the current White House chief of staff, literally oversaw the prison at Guantanamo Bay from 2012 until January 2016. Um, and he's stated on the record publicly before uh, that he, you know, is essentially in favor of keeping Guantanamo Bay open and doesn't really see that as a problem. And Attorney General Jeff Sessions, you know, who is the head of the, the DOJ, right, who would be very much involved in this gave an interview in which he said uh, that Guantanamo was, quote, a very fine place, unquote, to hold, quote, these kind of dangerous criminals, unquote. A very fine place is not really the kind of description you tend to hear of Guantanamo Bay prison. So just super quickly, it's worth pointing out that uh, Deputy Attorney General, uh, the number two at the DOJ, Rod Rosenstein, during his confirmation hearing, mentioned that he actually thought a lot of that actually these prisoners should be tried in federal court, not in Guantanamo Bay. So there, I don't, I'm interested in sort of that dynamic. I haven't heard too much about Sessions and Rosenstein going at it. Well, the specific cast of characters that you, Jen and Alex, have just been talking about show why this stuff about what America is isn't just like airy-fairy 
abstract right. stuff. There's this great essay by a Georgetown law professor named David Luban uh, in which he identifies torture as, a, as not just a thing that happens, but as a culture. Once you start saying that it's okay to start torturing people under certain circumstances, the logic necessarily expands. You start thinking about more and more circumstances under which it would be acceptable because maybe torture in this case could save a life. Maybe it'll get critical intelligence. And that's the way that lawlessness creeps into a system once you allow it in. People start thinking about circumstances in which these things, which should be exceptional and really maybe shouldn't exist at all. Definitely shouldn't exist at all. I would go as far as to say. Those, Those things can't, can be applied in broader and broader circumstances and become normalized and routinized in people's minds. So you get people like Sessions and John Kelly coming to believe that this is the natural state of affairs because it's what they've lived with as part of their political experience. It's their Just to be political clear, they're culture. not advocating torture. They're advocating putting prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. Mattis for sure does not advocate yeah, torture. Yes, you're totally right on your point on the broader kind of issue of how having these people, um, you know, in, in government, Trump himself has— previously said he wanted to bring back waterboarding and worse than waterboarding. Um, Thankfully, Mattis, as you said, Alex, very strongly opposes torture. Um, And so does the CIA bureaucracy who and and DOD um, who kind of lived through the shame of the torture era. But all of this also depends on if there's another massive terrorist attack. Like, how does that change our perception of what's acceptable? Like you said, Zach, and if we don't have a bright line, if we don't have this is legal, this is illegal, which we do, but if that's not part of the culture, if that's not a deep part of American institutional belief, then you get a slippery slope and you could start to kind of backslide. And that's when it gets really scary. And with those dark comments about the permanent state of exception we've been living in since 9-11, Let's turn to Elsewhere. For Elsewhere today, we're traveling to Spain. Instead of talking about the war on terror, we're going to talk about the war on illegal fruit. Authorities in Seville, Spain, were reportedly met with a cascade of oranges when they opened the door of a car they just pulled over. Picture this, right? Police... They not only found this car, they chased it, apparently, around the highway, and they open it, and there's just all of these oranges that are cascading, spilling out all over the street. Right. It's a small, like, white sedan, and they open the back door, and it's literally, like, thousands of oranges just pouring out. It was more than just the car. There was also a, a van and then a second car. They were riding in sort of, like, like, a caravan, and then when they saw a cop, they moved it. Like, they, like, made a brusque move. It was an orange convoy. Yeah, it was an orange convoy, and so cops, like, were like, this seems suspicious, and then they went and found it. So so this is an entire little, like, fast and furious scenario of yeah. secret fruit cars. Fast and, and citrus, yeah. It's <laughs> great. So so we, we saw this story, right? We are like, this is hilarious and weird. And then it turns out our resident Spaniard here, Alex Ward, actually has a ton of background on why this is a thing that happens more frequently than you would expect. Okay. So I am a dual citizen. I am a Spanish, uh, Spain in the U.S. Uh, I go to Spain to go visit my family. And it's every time I check the news and and there's a big like watch news culture in Spain. uh, There's always something about Spain and fruit. And here's what I mean. The Spanish economy cares deeply about its exports of fruit. And it does so at a lower price, usually. It artificially lowers the prices. Uh, and that leads to massive problems with countries around it, especially France. So this has led, this has been going on since like the 1980s. So let me give you a picture of kind of what, what happens. Spain exports its fruit, like oranges, peaches, whatever, at a lower price to France. And French farmers are upset about this because, of course, people are going to buy the Spanish fruit. So they start like attacking trucks 
and they go into them. They take they take the fruit out. They burn them. They empty wine onto the street. This has been going on for years. It's gotten to the point that Spanish officials have called these kinds of attacks acts of aggression. But two, it's also possible that these people took the extra fruit because it's, you know, they, they need to get fruit somehow. And there's a lot of problems with, with the prices in Spain and whatnot. We don't know why these people stole the four tons of fruit yet, right? Like we don't know like if they're Four French, tons of oranges. That's just, how many it's, oranges. It's amazing. Right. So we don't we don't know if it's part of this war, but it does speak to the fact that fruit plays this really important, the central role in the Spanish economy. And you, you were saying, too, though, I think that wasn't it's not even just economic. It's this kind of broader, like cultural, like our fruit is better than yours. Right. Because both France and Spain had this like really robust culinary kind of culture of like our food is like the epitome of cuisine. Right. Yeah. And our fruit is the best. So you have the French and the Spanish. Essentially, like one of the stories that you you flagged for us, like they're literally like pulling fruit out of trucks and throwing it across the border yeah. at each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this happens consistently. Uh, yeah, so part of it is that you know France and Spain have like a soccer rivalry, tons of rivalry, historic rivalry. One of them is in food. A lot of this is economics. But sort of the macro issue here is that there's a constant battle over which country has the best food. Italy's sort of in there, but it's just pasta. So. Uh, <laughs> And pizza, I guess. But either way, like— I'll say I like Italian food better than either Spanish or French food. Then, you know, that you're wrong. You're allowed your opinion, though. Uh, either way, <laughs> either way, uh, this this is sort of part of this culture. I mean, let, let me kind of go into this. Uh, for example, uh, in two, 2016, this is one of the, the more recent examples, French farmers attacked two Spanish trucks that were carrying wine at the border. I mentioned that. Dumped it into the, into the street. And, and France keeps calling on the EU for help with this. Uh, and Spain as well. Basically, both countries are really upset that there are these farmers on both sides that are just one Spanish side's putting, uh, you know, cheaper fruit and the French for dumping it. Uh, the EU is not really stepping in here because, of course, the EU is sort of like a single market. And so there's even though there's this sort of quote unquote trade dispute, um, it's not much it can do. I mean, this is just sort of the market. Spanish labor costs are lower and so is overhead. What and- I think is interesting, though, is like part of the reason the reasoning for the EU was to bring people together in a single market, it wasn't just economic, right? The idea was if you have these kind of cross-border ties, you would reduce the chance that people might go to war, right? You integrate their economies. That was the kind of broader European project, right? So I think it's interesting that you see these fruit border skirmishes. Um, but, you know, in previous centuries, things like this could escalate into actual war between countries. See, I, don't, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that there would be like a big fruit war, but certainly like if you look at U.S.-China tensions right now, right, right there's trade wars. Yeah, there's yeah. serious issues surrounding, I mean, the Trump administration just slapped a bunch of tariffs on Chinese solar, I mean, solar imports in general, but really targeting the Chinese market. Right. Right. They're talking more about unfair trade practices and so on. And the, the EU eliminates all of that. Right. It really, like Spain and France can fight all that they want about this and individual citizens can throw wine or whatever Mm -hmm. and people can steal fruit. But ultimately, EU law prevents this from escalating into a really serious kind of trade dispute. And the current president, Emmanuel Macron, part of the reason, it's not the biggest reason, mind you. If you couldn't tell from his name, he's the president of France. Yeah, yeah, sorry, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. Part of the reason he's there is because the previous president, Francois Hollande, uh, did very little to solve this problem that that French farmers felt that they had. Uh, a lot of them were on the verge of bankruptcy, and they would organize again. Like hundreds of of farmers would go and, and block the border and block like meat imports and and fruit imports. And part of it was just, Hollande just did nothing to help. And Macron kind of promised to solve this. It was interesting is that ninety percent of the French public sided with the French farmers. 
So this was a politically popular thing for the farmers to do, despite the fact that it's kind of insane that they're going to attack trucks um, and and put out all of all of the goods. The Great out on Peach the War. The Great Peach War. Yeah, the the French uh, former Interior Minister uh, or Agriculture Minister, excuse me, called it like the Great Peach War. That this would this that this kind of skirmish over Spanish French fruit and exports was a legitimate thing that both sides needed to solve. Well, you're making this sound serious, and it is serious, it is. right? Right. It really matters to these countries' politics and to these but, people's actual, you know, lives, yeah, livelihood. Yeah, but it's just it's less serious and scary than the kind of conflicts that we were just talking about, right? right? There's like. I almost feel like they're acceptable and unacceptable nationalisms, right? Like unacceptable nationalisms are the ones that escalate into really, really serious trade conflicts that devastate the global economy or even outright violence. But here you have nationalism playing out within a set of rules, a framework that prevents the dispute from becoming devastating to either country. And it's a little bit like the Olympics, right? There's a lot of nationalism suffusing the Olympics, but it's contained within a framework that – allows for an acceptable venting of competition. How many cars full of oranges do you think will be at the Olympics is really my question. That is an event now. <laughs> Dri- driving while orange. Olympic orange driving. <laughs> Olympic orange driving. But to your point, I agree completely with your point, Zach, but don't forget that like some of these smaller nationalisms can kind of catalyze and grow bigger. The farmers in Spain that are most hit by sort of this, this quote-unquote war are Catalan farmers uh, because of the, the geography of Spain, right? Catalonia's in the Northeast that's borders with France. Um, and because they became poor and the Spanish government did very little, I mean, the Catalan government did very little to help them out, that led to, well, I'm looking, looking for help. And a lot of these farmers joined the and because especially they're in rural areas, join the independence movement that has roiled Catalonia and Spain for years. So I'm not blaming the fruit war on this, but I'm saying that like some of these smaller issues, if they're not solved, can boil over. Right. It's worth noting that uh, this kind of devolution or, or leaving the European Union in the case of the UK is not actually a great solution to this sort right. of problem. <laughs> One of the estimates that we've seen coming from the Brexit decision has been that the UK depends heavily on Spanish fruit and vegetable imports. And so prices in the UK, if they do in fact leave the European Union without access to the single market, are going to go up substantially. And that'll be a real cost to British farmers. So while the EU doesn't solve all these problems, right, it is a significant improvement in the quality of people's lives. And there isn't there doesn't appear to be a good alternative inside Europe right now. And so we're left in a state in which there are great fruit heists, great peach wars, but for the most part, no actual wars. Uh, and Aren't you glad we did this? Okay. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> it's a good place to end our show with jokester Alex Ward, our defense and national security correspondent, Jen, one of our editors in the foreign section, and me, the... Uh, senior foreign policy reporter, I'd like to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, our editor, Peter Leonard, and our social media person, Julie Bogan. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we hope you rate, subscribe, and otherwise listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the rest. Have a great week. <laughs>